This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we take a closer look at the Republican efforts to overturn President-elect Joe Biden's victory in Michigan. Last Tuesday, election officials in Michigan's largest county certified Joe Biden's victory after a dramatic reversal. The two white Republicans on the Wayne County Board of Canvassers initially blocked certification, saying they didn't want to include votes from Detroit which overwhelmingly supported Biden and has a large African-American population. President Trump then took to Twitter to praise the Republican effort, saying, having courage is a beautiful thing. The USA stands proud. Well, Reverend Wendell Anthony, the president of the NAACP in Detroit, criticized the Republican efforts to disenfranchise votes in Detroit that night. You have extracted a black city out of a county and said the only ones that are at fault at an issue is the city of Detroit, where 80% of the people who reside here are African-Americans. Shame on you. Shame on you. You are a disgrace as relates to the ability to have a free and impartial election in this nation. Um, And then I wanted to go to Ned Stabler, who is vice president at Wayne State. I just want to let you know that the Trump stick, the stain of racism that you, William Hartman and Monica Palmer, have just covered yourself in is going to follow you throughout history. Your grandchildren are going to think of you like Bull Connor or George Wallace. I mean, this was an amazing virtual meeting, and we are joined by Reverend Wendell Anthony now, president of the Detroit branch of the NAACP, the largest branch of the NAACP in the country. He's also a member of the NAACP National Board of Directors, still with us, New York Times writer Emily Bazelon. Um, So, Reverend Wendell Anthony, thanks so much for being with us. Can you describe what is happening right now in Detroit, the amount of rage that was expressed that actually led to the reversal? Reversal of these Republican um, county, what are they called, canvassers. Um, but then they requested to take their vote certifying back. Well, thank you, Ms. Goodman. Good morning to you and your guests. Uh, if it was not so tragic, it would simply be pathetic. This is an attempt to disenfranchise the African-American vote and to give the election to Donald Trump. We fired Donald Trump and we hired Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In Detroit, in Wayne County, which is the largest city in Wayne County, 80 to 90 percent almost of black folk who live here, one of the canvassers indicated, as you already said, that perhaps we should just count all the votes in the other areas and not certify the votes that comes from Detroit. This is a strategy that we see around the country. Philadelphia, Atlanta, Wisconsin, Detroit, All of these areas are major urban centers of black folk. The suburban communities around Detroit, and in some cases they had issues much greater than Detroit, they did not say we should not certify them. They said let's let's not certify Detroit. That's tantamount to let's not certify the black vote. Black votes matter. Black lives matter. That's why we do what we do. And what this is, very simply, if we were in a different country, Ms. Goodman, this would be called a coup, a political coup, because what you have seen is a president that has declared that I will not leave office unless I win, slow the post office down, take out mailboxes, 
stop the mail from coming through, discredit the guy who's in charge of the election process, who called it the most secure election that we've had, no evidence of fraud, no evidence of, of voter rigging, none of that. Then to have Lindsey Graham calling the Secretary of State in Georgia, he's a senator from South Carolina, not Georgia, to get him to not to certify and to discount some of the votes. And now we see the latest strategy since the judges in the courts around America are not going with this nonsense. The move is to not certify. If we cannot certify, we can delay the election, we can push it back, and then perhaps we can get some new electors. But if we can't get that, maybe we can take it to the Congress and do something different and come up with a different income outcome. No, we voted the way we voted in Wayne County and around the country. We want our votes to count, certify the vote. This has never happened before. It is a tragedy before God and man. We are not in any moral position to tell any nation anywhere in the world that we should be having democratic processes. How can we go monitor somebody in another nation when we cannot monitor and check ourselves? We need the United Nations, quite frankly, to come in and monitor the United States. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in this situation. This is the worst situation in terms of the presidential election that we've had since we've had a nation. Donald Trump was fired. He does not want to leave office and he's fighting by any means necessary to remain at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Reverend Anthony, explain the lawsuit that some Detroiters have brought. The lawsuit is very simply filed by the Legal Defense Fund and some of the folk in the city of Detroit. It's simply saying that you cannot discredit the blind folk. You must certify the blind folk. You cannot pick us out and at the same time let everybody else go, that we want to get in advance and in front of this process, that our votes should be certified, that you are violating uh, the Voting Rights Act, you're violating uh, the civil rights causes of respecting and maintaining a balance of all of the people, that we should not be subject to it. One of the things that they're overlooking, I think you mentioned it, is that if you don't certify the vote, if you don't certify the election, you're not certifying all the judges. You're not certifying the senators uh, and the state representatives. You're not certifying the ballot initiatives. You're not certifying the county clerks and the board of trustees and the board of directors of universities. That means that all of them will not be certified in order to preserve one man who's on the golf course when he should be on the course to try to stop the coronavirus disease that has now killed 255,000 Americans more dying every day as you and I are talking, somebody is dying while he's playing golf. That's what this is all about. That's why we're encouraging everybody to get on the phone, to get on the line, call your senators, call your congresspeople, and when the Board of Canvassers meets today at 1 o'clock to make sure you're on the line and to make public comment and to let these individuals know that democracy today, democracy tomorrow, and democracy should prevail. We've come too far to be turned back now. You see this as an attempted coup, Reverend Anthony. I do, Ms. Goodman, no question. You know as well as I do. You may not say it, but if you were in a different country,
country. If the leader says, I'm not leaving until I win. If the leader says to all of his people, don't cooperate with the oncoming administration. If the leader says that I'm going to fire the people that are at the top, if he shifts the military around and try to get his own minions in position, if he has his cohorts calling other states, which they do not have anything to do with, if he's slowing down the postal service, if he's saying take out the mailboxes and take out the machines that can do accurate counting, if he's saying and bringing legislators into his house and having a meeting, and then they're up at his hotel, the Trump Towers, if he's doing all of that in another country, and if he's now saying at the very last minute, okay, those of you who are charged with responsibility to certify the election, why don't you see if you can delay and put it off into another day? If we were in another country, that would be considered as a coup. You know it as well as I do. And, as and the bottom line is, we ain't going for it. This is the United States of America. We are a democratic, supposedly, nation. We have a constitution. And in case people did not get the memo, black people, we be free now, y'all. We got the Voting Rights Act. We got the right to vote 150 years ago. Black men did. Women got it 100 years ago. We got the Voting Rights Act 55 years ago. And now we find ourselves in 2020 still trying to fight the same fight. This is not a time for us to revisit George Wallace standing in the doorway saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Instead of that saying no voting today, no voting tomorrow, no voting forever. No, we have shed too much blood. We've sweated too much pain and we've shed too many tears. Our vote must count. Certify the vote. Don't play with it. Deal with it. Um, and if you have pointed out, this is all happening during a pandemic. So people risk their lives to go out to vote. And who are the hardest hit communities when it comes to uh, the pandemic and people dying? Our communities of color, African-Americans, um, one of the worst hit in this country. And of course, Detroit, a large African-American population. Um, you mentioned uh, the flying in of the state legislators, the head of the House and the Senate. Um, the state house and the state senate um, Michigan legislators that Trump met with on Friday uh, they go to Trump um, hotel there are seen drinking an $800 bottle of Dom Perignon Emily Bazelon I wanted to bring in the issue of fundraising do you think part of why President Trump is doing this that um, if in fact he can't accomplish this he will accomplish endless fundraising to fund his uh, so-called election fraud his attempts to overthrow the election which then he can personally use well, the fundraising appeals have made clear in the fine print that up to 60% of the funds raised can be used for retiring campaign debt and other expenses rather than this litigation. So I think we see right there um, evidence for what you're talking about. And do you think that this can succeed today in Michigan and what it means? Because remember, also, we are talking about Wisconsin being told they have to recount their votes. 
I don't think that President Trump's efforts to overturn the election will succeed. I think that American democracy is actually withstanding his assaults uh, pretty effectively. That said, I completely understand Reverend Anthony's um, distress and call to action in Michigan today because this vote of the State Board of Canvassers could make things more complicated. If the Board of Canvasser members don't do their job and certify the election, it's going to throw into confusion what happens next. I think the answer to what happens next is that um, there'll be a court case filed, and presumably when you look at uh, the previous cases, there's nothing quite like this in Michigan law, but there have been county boards that have refused to certify in the past, and the state courts have ordered them to do so. So when I look at those precedents and what the law says in Michigan, it looks to me like the state board of canvassers would be ordered by a court to certify the election, and then everyone's votes will count. Um just the way democracy is supposed to work. But it will be a kind of foul up in the process. And I think it will be embarrassing um, to the state of Michigan. And before we go, I wanted to ask you about something else you've been writing about, Emily Bazelon, and that is the census and how that fits into future elections. The census is critical to future elections. Um, I think sometimes it's harder for people to focus on it. We kind of take it for granted. But it is how we count the population. And then those totals are used to decide apportionment and redistricting. So that means how many House seats each state gets. That's determined by the count in the census. And the same is true about carving up legislative districts according to the one-person, one-vote rule within states. We also care a lot about the census because it's how we allocate millions and millions of dollars of tax resources. So it is critical for the census to be accurate. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is the Trump administration's efforts to basically sideline people who are not citizens or are undocumented from the count. And they have currently ordered the census to provide data that would allow President Trump, before he leaves office, to strip undocumented immigrants from the apportionment totals. That would increase the power of of Republicans um, in the House of Representatives. It's a pretty naked power play. And so what we saw last week was Census Bureau officials saying, we need more time to do our count right. We need more time to do our jobs. And we have yet to see how that plays out uh, through the end of Trump's term. And Emily, if a coup attempt fails, it's still a coup attempt. At what point um, will there be serious legal consequences for Trump and those who abet him? That's a really good question. I don't think we're going to have an answer to that until after he leaves office. What I do want to make clear is this was an incredibly well-conducted election under seriously adverse circumstances. We had the pandemic. We had a president who was assaulting, in particular, a vote by mail for many months. And yet thousands of election officials in states and counties, they just did their jobs and they made sure that people could vote. It wasn't perfect. There were still long lines. We have lots of problems with voter suppression in America. They're not gone. But in terms of being able to trust the integrity of these results of, you know, the people who did this work, I did a lot of reporting on them throughout the country. And I think it's really important to remember that one of the sad things about this attack on the election is that actually we were incredibly lucky and the election went well. Not just luck, I should say. A lot of people's really hard work went into making sure that was the case. 
And finally, Reverend Wendell Anthony, you get the final word here. You talked about one o'clock Michigan time being the time of the state board of canvassers, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats voting. Um, what are you calling for at that point? And when it comes to the Republican leaders um, in your state, in the legislator, legislature, um, are there people that you hold out that are speaking out? And what are you demanding of Democrats and Republicans right now in Michigan? Well, it's good. All we really want people to do is to do their job. That's all they have to do. Their charge is to certify the vote. 83 counties in Michigan have certified the vote. This Constitution and their ordinance indicates that you shall certify the vote. That mean it's nothing ambiguous about that. It's no, if I would, I should, I could, I. You don't even have to think about it. You just go and do your job and certify. And so the issue now becomes whether or not they have the will to do it. Has somebody tainted that or interfered with that? Or someone suggested that let's delay this. That's the real issue. So we're demanding, number one, that they do their job. We're simply saying that at 1 o'clock when the canvases meet, People should be on the line. People should be monitoring the meeting. People should state their case right now. People should call Shirky. They should call Chatfield and indicate that we want you to make sure that you don't tamper with this election. You have said that you've seen nothing that should discord or, or dis disconnect you from the election. And so, therefore, go ahead and do the right thing. Don't tamper with it. Don't delay it. Don't have unnecessary court cases because court cases means delay. That means that we got to go through a process. Well, a process we've already undergone. We voted. People stood in lines. We went to the polls. We passed out literature. We made phone calls. We did robocalling. We were on the radio. We were on TV. We knocked on doors. We had parades to the polls. We had folks to come early and do what they were told. Vote early. Uh, vote absentee. Do your mail-in thing. They told their people to come and vote on election day. Both groups did what they did, were told. Now you're mad because all the votes came in early and that you've lost. He was defeated in Michigan 15 times by the number of which he won Michigan in 2016, Trump. And so we're simply saying that do not tamper with the millions of people in the state of Michigan who voted to fire Donald Trump and to hire Joe Biden. This is hypocrisy of the highest order. History is not going to reward them well for this. But more important than his story is today's story dealing with certifying the election. We did it. We voted. And allow now the vote be counted. Let everybody vote count and count every vote. And let's do that with certification. Okay, okay. thank you for listening. Unfortunately, and it's going to get rough and bumpy from now until uh, Trump's 
taken out of the White House. It doesn't seem like he's willing to go. So it looks like the uh, police will have to take him, walk him out, drag him out, or do whatever. Let's hear his uh, niece, Mary Trump, a psychologist. She has a new book out, and she's been speaking out for a long time now. Let's hear her side of the story. Of course, Trump this is Democracy Now! DemocracyNow.org, the quarantine report. Today, we spend the hour with the author of a book President Trump doesn't want you to read. Mary Trump is the niece of President Donald Trump, a clinical psychologist, author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. She describes Donald Trump as a sociopath who grew up in a dysfunctional family that fostered his greed and cruelty, which he is now inflicting on the world. Donald Trump's younger brother, Robert, attempted to block the sale of the book on behalf of the Trump family, saying it violated a confidentiality agreement. But a New York judge ruled against him. The book was published in July, and Mary Trump was allowed to speak about it. Too Much and Never Enough sold more copies in a week than Trump's Art of the Deal did in 29 years. Yes, Mary Trump's book sold nearly one million copies in one day. The publication date. In her book, Dr. Mary Trump writes, quote, the out of control COVID-19 pandemic, the possibility of an economic depression, deepening social divides along political lines, thanks to Donald's penchant for division and devastating uncertainty about our country's future, have created a perfect storm of catastrophes that no one is less equipped than my uncle to manage, she writes. The U.S. coronavirus death toll now stands at 160,000, by far the highest total in the world. Some estimates say it could rise to 300,000 by the end of the year. Dr. Mary Trump, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Well, you have said that your uncle, President Trump, should face criminal charges for his response to the pandemic. Explain. It's hard at this point uh, to give him any uh, slack for not having acted. You know, we now know what to do uh, to mitigate the spread of this very uh, infectious disease. And he's not only not doing those things, he's actively advocating against them still and continuing to claim that it's just going to disappear it's still some kind of hoax using the racist term china virus uh, to get himself off the hook and with over 160,000 americans dead um and rising how can we how can we not assume that there's some kind of culpability here and uh you know he he is able to make steps to uh, fix this problem, and since he's not doing it, uh, that to me also suggests criminal culpability. So, you say so much in this book. Give us a kind of deep background on the Trump family and Donald Trump himself uh, that we've ever read or seen. If you can talk about why you wrote too much and never enough. I wrote this book primarily to give people the kind of information they did not have access to in 2016 
And there are reasons I wasn't able to do that in 2016, um, having to do partially with, uh, you know, nothing, nothing he did or said seemed to turn anybody off anyway. So I'm not entirely sure that um, my saying anything would matter. Um, so in 2020, there's so much more at stake than there ever has been. I, I believe that this country is, is, is on the knife's edge. And I don't want anybody going to cast their vote in November being able to claim that they just don't know who they're voting for. So tell us about your family. You are the daughter of Donald Trump's older brother, Freddie Trump who died at a young age. Um, take us back um, to uh, your family uh, as you talk about um, and quote, oh, Victor Hugo of Les Miserables, talking about deep darkness. Um, I wanted to uh, share that quote if you want to uh, talk a little about it. Um, your, the book opening with that quote that says, if the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but the one who causes the darkness. The epigraph clearly a reference to what Fred Trump, uh, your grandfather, you say, did to Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, I chose that quote specifically for that reason, but also because I think it works uh, in the present day. You know, I think a lot of people uh, in this country are left, are purposely left in the dark um, and making bad decisions and uh, self-defeating decisions because they, they are not given access to information that would help them make better choices. Um, but as far as my grandfather... Uh, he was um, basically the the only person in the family whose opinion mattered. He had all of the power. Uh, you know, it was a very patriarchal system I grew up in. Um, there was a lot of misogyny, so being being a girl in that family was uh, an automatic strike against you. Um, and my grandfather was uh, the kind of man who believed in um, dynasty, in, in a way. I mean, he wouldn't have put it in those terms, but, you know, he had his uh, real estate empire and his oldest son and namesake, my father, was going to be his successor and his empire was going to last in perpetuity. Unfortunately... For my father's sake, he wasn't the right kind of person in my grandfather's eyes. Um, my grandfather needed somebody who was a killer, who was a tough guy, uh, somebody who would win at all costs and was not weak in any way. Uh, in my family, being kind was considered being weak. Um, admitting your mistakes and apologizing for, for them was... Uh, equated with weakness as well. So um, I don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point, uh, certainly I would imagine by the time my dad was in college, my grandfather already knew that he was probably not going to cut it as his uh, heir apparent. So Donald, who was seven and a half years younger, uh, learned from my grandfather's psychological and emotional abuse of my dad. And, and the, the, the message was essentially, 
don't be like Freddie. And since my grandfather ran my family as a, a zero-sum game, and there could only be one winner and everybody else was a loser, Donald was determined to win. And uh, he, in my grandfather's eyes at least, did and, you know, had su- successfully auditioned as my dad's replacement. I wanted to ask you about a New York Times report long ago in 1927 that your grandfather, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was arrested at a Ku Klux Klan riot in Queens, New York. The article is subtitled Klan Assails Policemen. It reports that a thousand Klansmen and 100 policemen staged a free-for-all battle. It lists Fred Trump with his address as one of seven men who were arrested and arraigned for the assault. Charges against him were dropped. New York Police Commissioner Warren is quoted in the article saying the Klan not only wore gowns but had hoods over their faces almost completely hiding their identity. The report was found and published in 2015 by the website Boing Boing. In a New York Times interview about the discovery, your uncle, Donald Trump, said, I saw that it was one of one little website that said it. It never happened. They said there were no charges, no nothing. It's unfair to mention it, to be honest, because there were no charges. They said there were charges against other people, but there were absolutely no charges. Totally false, he said. But we're going back to that 2017 report in the New York Times. Do you know about this, Mary Trump? Did you hear about it as you were growing up? No, I, I didn't. Um, although, you know, my family wasn't great at telling stories. Um, but, I, you know, unlike Donald, I don't doubt the v- validity of the report. It would be kind of a random thing to make up 60 years ago or uh, 80 years ago, whenever it was. Um, the only thing that surprises me, because, you know, my family was quite anti-Semitic, uh, along with other things, Um so the only thing that surprises me is that my grandfather would take time away from his business to go to anything, honestly. But it wouldn't surprise me that he shared the sentiments. You say that Donald Trump and your family were anti-Semitic um, and uh, were racist. Um, can you give us examples, particularly of President Trump, as you knew him growing up? You know, I can't because it was just the way it was, honestly. It was sort of uh, the background. Um, You know, the terms were thrown about rather casually. um, And, you know, I don't want to suggest that, like, there was this sense of virulence in the household. But, uh, you know, it was just language that was used. And um, it it was a given. So... I can't think of any specific examples. I mean, if I could, that would suggest that it, it didn't happen very often, you know. Did you ever hear uh, Donald Trump, your uncle, use the N-word? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, I, I know that sounds awful to put it that way, but when you live in a family um, and, you know, you're a kid, um, it's not that I didn't know it was wrong. I did because I, I lived a very different kind of experience growing up. Um, you know, I lived in Jamaica, Queens, which was, uh, you know, 
lower class, working class, and predominantly African-American. I went to a school that was predominantly Jewish. So I didn't understand the animus, but it wasn't shocking because it's just the way it was. These are, this is how adults in my orbit um, spoke and behaved. And now, of course, I, uh, you know, I learned a long time ago that it wasn't just something I disagreed with, but it was deeply wrong. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess I say it the way I say it is just to, to underscore how casual and accepted it was. So I wanted to then go to the 1970s. Um, your father was being sidelined uh, in the Trump organization, though it does sound like he very much didn't want to really do that job. He loved flying, and I want to ask you about him in a minute. Uh, but Donald Trump came to the fore very quickly, became president when what? He was in his early 20s. Um, in 1973, the Department of Justice filed a federal lawsuit against Donald Trump and the company for alleged racial discrimination at Trump housing developments in New York. Again, the Justice Department suing personally Donald Trump, uh, his father, your grandfather Fred, and Trump management in order to obtain a settlement in which Trump and his father would promise not to discriminate. It was settled like two years later after Trump tried to countersue the Justice Department for $100 million for making false statements, um, allegations all dismissed by the court. Yeah. Um, can you, Mary Trump, talk about what you understood, um, uh, what happened at that time? Well, I was eight, so um, I'm not entirely sure I would have been aware of it. Um, I, I do remember my dad was worried. He wasn't in the, uh, you know, he wasn't working for my grandfather's company anymore. But, um, you know, I know at that time he was he was worried about this lawsuit. Um, and, you know, shortly before that, uh, or a couple of years before that, my, my grandfather had been involved uh, with the Tomasellos, which allegedly had mafia ties uh, that might have gotten my grandfather into trouble. And I know my dad was worried about that as well. But he was outside of it. Uh, so I didn't have any um, access into what was really going on until much later. And I so I essentially know what other other people know uh, about what happened and how uh, you know, bringing Roy Cohn into the mix uh, kind of changed the course a little bit of where Donald was heading. So if you could talk about um, your family going back in time as we uh, backtrack, uh, give us a, a family, kind of family tree. What's interesting is Donald Trump has continually said, not clear why, Fred Trump, his father, your grandfather, was born in Germany. Now, your grandmother yeah. was, yeah. but it wasn't just a misstatement where he said it once and maybe meant his, his own grandfather. He has continually said that his father was born in Germany. Can you understand why? <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating what Donald gets wrong sometimes. Um, and, you know, 
it's difficult on occasion to know if he's doing it on purpose or not. Um, so that's con- that confuses me. Um, he used to say that he was Swedish. Um, you know, when asked what his ethnicity was, he would say Swedish because, you know, the excuse given was that they worked with a lot of uh, Jewish people and they didn't want to offend them by, he didn't want to offend them by admitting to his German roots. But my grandmother was Scottish, so I'm not, he could have said Scottish. Um, so it's never really clear why, uh, you know, he must know that his own father was born in the United States. Um Maybe it is, you know, my grandmother was born in Scotland. She was an immigrant. Um, I, I honestly can't tell you. It's very weird. Right. I meant to say your grandmother was. How did your grandmother come here um, from Scotland? And how did she meet your grandfather? And then talk about that relationship shaping Donald, which we can then take to when you went to the White House and that. picture missing perhaps uh, from the White House of the family gallery and that's the picture of Donald Trump's mother. That's right. Yeah, um, my grandmother was the youngest of 10 who grew up on a very tiny island off the northwest coast of Scotland. Not exactly a a pleasant environment. It was a very harsh place to live in the early 20th century. It's beautiful, but it must have been extremely difficult to live there uh, all those years ago. So she came to the United States uh, to join two of her older sisters who were already here. And I think both of them were already married at the time um, to American men. And uh, I think she came in part because the male population on the Isle of Lewis uh, had been decimated by World War I, um, the 1918 pandemic, and a, a horrible shipwreck off the coast uh, after, uh, at the end of World War One, So um, she came as a domestic servant, I believe, and she met my grandfather at a dance very shortly after she arrived. Uh, and, you know, family lore says that my dad, my grandfather, who was living with his mother at the time, went home after the dance and told her that he had found the woman he was going to marry, um, and which he did but it was five years later, which seemed, I never found out why it took so long, but anyway, they got married. And um, very shortly started having a family and my grandfather by that time was already very, very successful. And that never, you know, that trajectory never changed direction. He, he got more successful and, and more wealthy every year. Um, but when uh, Donald was two and a half, my grandmother got very ill. Uh, by that point, all five of their children had already been born. Marianne was the oldest, then my dad, my Aunt Elizabeth, Donald, and a year and a half years later, Robert, um, who was nine months old when my grandmother became ill. Uh, she was essentially absent uh, for almost a year. Um, she had suffered very severe postpartum issues after my uncle Robert was born that had gone undetected for so long that they were life-threatening. And that was the first major experience that shaped Donald. Uh, he experienced her, her absence as, as an abandonment. And my grandfather, who was a straight up sociopath was incapable and unwilling to fulfill the caregiver role. 
So Donald was very lonely and very frightened at an, an extremely crucial uh, developmental period. So, um, you know, he was never able to um, make up the deficits that occurred at that time. And I think um, my grandmother, even to the extent she got better, was never able to heal the rifts between them because although clearly it wasn't her fault that she got ill, uh, she never really took responsibility for, um, you know, making it up to him and um, helping him heal that sense of abandonment. And then I think by the time he was sent to the military academy at 13, and my grandmother did absolutely nothing to prevent it, um, I think that was the final betrayal as far as he was concerned. So it wasn't surprising to me uh, when I visited the White House in April 2017 that the only picture he had um, on the sideboard behind the Resolute desk was a picture of my grandfather uh, kind of at the height of his powers and nobody else. So um, my Aunt Marianne pointed out to Donald that she, he should maybe have a picture of their mother on the desk too. And he basically said, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Somebody get me a picture of mom. And what I find very interesting is uh, that the picture I've seen that he has on his desk is a picture of my grandmother before she had even met my grandfather. So it's a picture of Donald's mother before she was his mother. You mentioned that Donald Trump went to a military academy um, mm -hmm. for high school. Explain yeah. why he went there. In, um, I guess it would have been, you know, middle school, I guess. His behavior started to become increasingly belligerent and uh, uncontrollable. So, and it wasn't just at home, it was at school as well. Uh, he went to a small school in Forest Hills, which is actually the same school I attended when I was a kid. And um, my grandfather was on the board of trustees at that school. So I think on the one hand, my grandfather found it annoying that his son was creating problems in a school that he was associated with. But he was also out of control in the house as well. Um, my grandfather worked a lot. He worked six days a week, many, many hours a day. So my grandmother was the one who had to deal with the brunt of Donald's uh disobedience and disrespect towards her. So at, at one point, the somebody suggested to my grandfather that, you know, maybe uh, the New York Military Academy would straighten Donald out. And because at the time, um, Donald wasn't on my grandfather's radar yet because, you know, my, my father was still his primary focus. Um, and because my, my grandmother was actually would have been quite happy to have him out of the house, he was sent to New York Military Academy, and it, it was really a, a, a punishment, um, not, you know, it wasn't like he was being sent to uh, Choate or something. So he comes back, he goes to Fordham, starts there, and then you mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> make a very serious allegation in your book. You mm -hmm. say that he paid another young man to take his yeah. SATs. Explain mm -hmm. what you know. Um, you know, this is, this is a story that's known in my family. Um, you know, I've been, I've been told this directly on numerous occasions and it was because 
Donald, you know, at that time, uh, I mean, certainly since the time he was, you know, 12, probably had a very um, inflated sense of himself and Fordham wasn't good enough. You know, he, he felt he needed a, a degree commensurate with his hyperbolic self-regard, if you will. So um, he had heard of uh, Wharton, which I guess already had a good reputation. And while he was at Fordham, though, um, Marianne did his homework for him. And Marianne and is the, the um, retired federal judge from New Jersey. That's right. And she's about nine years older. So when Donald was at Fordham, he was living at my grandparents' house, and Marianne was living a few blocks away, already married with a child. Um, and also, he hadn't, when he graduated from high school, he, he hadn't been accepted into any college. So um, Fordham was a, you know, an intermediate step for him, I guess, but because he didn't do his homework um, himself, uh, you know, I don't know that his he had confidence that his grades were good enough to get into the University of Pennsylvania. So just just as a way to hedge his bets, uh, he paid a, a boy in the neighborhood uh, named Joe Shapiro, who was, uh, I guess, had a reputation for being a good test taker, to take his SATs, um, which, as it turns out, wasn't necessary because, uh, I guess, University of Pennsylvania had a very high acceptance rate at the time. And also my dad's very good friend from... St. Paul's, which is where he went to high school, worked in the admissions department at the University of Pennsylvania, so Donald probably would have gone in anyway. He's made a big deal of having gone to the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. It's very important to him. What did your yeah. father call Donald from a young age? Uh, he called him the great I am. From what, like the age of 12? Yeah, <laughs> which just you know goes to show how, how long this has been going on. Clearly, President Trump um, cloaks himself, uh, constantly refers to the military, praising the military. But you also write that uh, Donald Trump and his first wife, Ivana, Ivana being the mother of Eric, Don Jr., and Ivanka, uh, that Donald Trump and Ivana threatened to disown Donald Trump Jr. if he went into the military? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my uncle Rob told me that story um a couple of times years ago. And um, so I don't find it surprising the way Donald speaks about the military now, simply because I believe in his mind, it's it, the power of the military and the honor of the military reflects on him, you know, since he's in the Oval Office. Um, but he's never demonstrated any uh, use for it, or uh, he's never valued it before this. Um, you know, my dad was a second lieutenant in the National Guard. Donald has never mentioned that. Um, he, as we all know, got five deferments. Uh, he could have served his country and chose over and over again not to. Um, so I think whatever he has to say about the military now is uh, because he thinks it reflects on him. As we know, he also, he refers to the, the generals in, in the United States military as his generals, which they most certainly are not. Mary, last month, Fox News, uh, the president's favorite network, and uh, until they criticize him and then he gets angry. Well, Fox News' Chris Wallace asked Trump about your claims, Mary Trump, about your grandfather, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump. 
My father liked to win. My father was a very good man. He was a strong man. It's disgraceful that she said that. She was not exactly a family favorite. We didn't have a lot of respect or like for her. I would have never said that, except she writes a book that's so stupid and so vicious, and it's a lie. My father was a great, wonderful man. Let me just ask you this but question. This is not a person that I spent very much time with, very little time. And now I'm glad. She's a very scarred person. She was not much of a family person. But look, let me just tell you, my father was, I think he was the most solid person I've ever met. And he was a very good person. He was a very, very good person. He was strong, but he was good. For her to say the kind of things, a psychopath, that he was a psychopath, anybody that knew Fred Trump would call him a psychopath. And you know what? If he was, I would tell you. And I would say, you know, Chris, I was with my father, and it was impossible. My father was, he was tough. He was tough on me. He was tough on all of the kids. But tough in a, in a solid sense, in a really good sense. For her to say, I think the word she used was psychopath. What a disgrace. She ought to be ashamed of herself. That book is a lie. That's Donald Trump uh, saying it's a lie, that you calling your grandfather a psychopath. And, of course, you've called President Trump a sociopath. Can you respond to what he said? Yeah, first of all, I, I refer to my grandfather as a sociopath. And I don't, I actually don't diagnose Donald specifically um, because, in part because I think it's kind of irrelevant, but he does his he certainly exhibits sociopathic behaviors. Um, that's for sure. Uh, you know, what, what is he going to say? Um, what, of course he'll deny that my grandfather was a sociopath, but I don't know that you could find many people who knew my grandfather who would say he was a good person, um, or any for that matter, uh, who weren't related to him. Um, and, and what's, to me, the, what's most telling about that is that, you know, Donald makes it clear that, um, or it's claims anyway, that he didn't spend a lot of time with me. Uh, first of all, I was at my grandparents' house all the time. All, all of the older grandchildren were at my grandparents' house very frequently when we were growing up. But if he didn't spend time with me, since he's my uncle, that would be sort of down to him. <laughs> you know, not me, but... Um, but in fact, he spent enough time with you to ask you to be the ghostwriter for his sequel yeah. to The Art of the Deal. Yes, indeed. Uh, so I, I, I guess nobody's asked him about that, but um, I don't know what he would, maybe he would say that he didn't know that I was his niece. <laughs> so he hired me. But, can, you, um, can you say what he said to you when you were 29 years old and you went to Mar-a-Lago? Um, it was hot outside. You were wearing a bathing yeah. suit. Yeah, um, we were having, it was just a Donald Marla and me Marla, the um, we second were having, yes um we were having lunch on the patio outside and mar-a-lago it was way before it was a private club so it was just his place and despite its you know pretentiousness it was pretty casual um you know so i felt comfortable coming from the pool with shorts and a bathing suit on and Donald had his golf clothes on, and as I approached the table where they were already sitting, he looks up at me, and it was as if he'd never seen me before. And he said, uh, I can't, uh, sorry, he swore. Um, want to make sure I don't do that. He said, holy expletive, Mary, you're stacked. Um, which, you know, I was 29 years old and not easily embarrassed, but that even that shock, even though I had known Donald my whole life, that still shocked me. <laughs> Um, 
and it, it created a bit of awkwardness uh, in the moment. So I quickly just wrapped my towel around myself and sat down and was I mean, mildly horrified. When you heard that videotape from Access Hollywood where he talks about grabbing women, the P word, and um, how he can't help himself, talking about bragging about sexually assaulting women. Um, yeah. Uh, did that surprise you? And then he won. Can you tell us what your aunt, his sister, uh, judge, uh, the federal judge, Marianne, said to you when you said, even with all of this, I fear he's going to win back in 2016. What did she say to you? She said uh, he's a clown and uh, there's no way people are going to vote for him. And I mean, I thought the same thing, honestly. Uh, I was just worried after he won the Republican nomination, the fact that he had a 1% chance of winning was too unnerving to me. Um, and then when I said to her, yeah, I, I don't understand it. Like, what has he ever accomplished? And she said, well, he has a he has had five bankruptcies. <laughs> so um, that was sort of uh, our take on the whole thing. Um, and as for the Access Hollywood tape, I wasn't the slightest bit shocked that he said it or that he admitted to these things or that he'd actually done these things. I was horrified that it didn't matter, <laughs> you know. So let me ask you, talking about the word horrifying, of what yeah. happened to your nephew, William? Uh, he was born, what, uh, on the day of the funeral um, of Fred yeah. Trump, of your grandfather. Um, your brother, you call him Fritz, Fred Trump? Yeah. Um, raced off to the hospital with his wife, Linda, and William was born. Uh, Lisa. And with, with, sorry, with his wife, Lisa, and William was born. Talk about um, the tremendous uh, um, physical challenges he faced within the first 24 hours of birth. Uh, yeah, he started having uh, very severe seizures and then ended up in the NICU for quite a, quite a while. Um, and, you know, we had... No idea why, or it had been a perfectly normal pregnancy, and the birth had been fine. Um, so there, it, there was no, like nobody knew anything at first. So you can only imagine just how terrified my sister-in-law and my brother were. Um, and then a couple of weeks after that, uh, we discovered that we'd been disinherited. Um, which was, you know, bad, but um, nothing compared to what my brother and sister were already going through, and it just made everything so much worse because it injected this new level of uncertainty. Uh, and, you know, luckily we had had excellent health care from the time we were born. Everybody in the family uh, had health coverage from my grandfather's company, um, for our entire lives. So, you know, that that was a real comfort. And um, our Uncle Robert had written a letter to uh, the insurance company to make it very clear that my nephew would get whatever he needed and it would be taken care of through the Trump management uh, health insurance. We're coming to the end of the hour, so I wanted to get to this quickly. They assured him of this. But yeah. then they took it away, and Donald Trump actually bragged about this infant facing a life of physical challenges and revoking that health insurance? 
Yeah, that was in retaliation to the fact that we brought a lawsuit to get, uh, against them, or I should say against my grandfather's estate, because the terms of his will were so egregious that it just didn't seem completely fair. And after five months of negotiating with my Uncle Robert, it was clear that nothing, they weren't going to change anything. And, um, you know, very shortly after we filed the lawsuit, they revoked our health insurance and William's health insurance. And we had to bring another lawsuit to get it reinstated, which we never did. Mary, before we end, I wanted to ask you about President Trump's attitudes to the LGBTQ community. Uh, you write in your book about sitting with your your grandma, your gam, as you called her, uh, Marianne McLeod Trump. Uh, it was the funeral memorial service for um, uh, Princess Diana. What yeah. did she refer to Elton John as? Uh, she called him the F word, uh, the for a, the slur for a gay man. So. And you were planning at that time to come out to your family, and at least to your grandmother. Uh, you made a big decision then not to do that, right? And as we wrap up, I was wondering if you can talk about whether you feel that attitude, that anti-LGBTQ um, sentiment um, was transferred to President Trump and what you are most concerned about with him. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, homophobia was not uh, something I grew up with simply because, like, homosexuality, was, homosexuality wasn't discussed, really. But it wasn't surprising to me. I mean, I, w I wasn't happy about it, <laughs> certainly, that my grandmother had those attitudes. But it didn't exactly surprise me in a household that was so racist, anti-Semitic, and misogynistic. So, uh, you know, by extension, Donald's attitudes towards the gay community aren't surprising. But he's done so much damage in the last uh, three and a half years, starting with the ban on transgender troops that I'm afraid it's going to take a very, very long time for us to regain the ground we've lost. Um, and can you end by talking about what the separation of children, immigrants on the border, has meant to you and what you say to your uncle, to President Donald Trump? That... To me, that I can't say it was the last straw, because from the Muslim ban on, every there just been new horrors all every day or a week. Um, but there was something about that 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 kind of broke me, um, because we're talking about it's not just children being kidnapped, and their parents are being tortured. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to worry about your child and 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 to have uncertainty about where they are or their well-being. It is literally torture. Um, people are dying in these concentration camps that they set up. What I would say to Donald is, uh, well, he wouldn't listen to me anyway, but um, it has to stop. It is antithetical uh, to what this country aspires to be, you know, uh, despite our past around these issues. And people like Stephen Miller, who is, uh, should not be anywhere near the executive branch of this country uh, should be dismissed immediately. And, um, you know, Donald should maybe think about surrounding himself with people who have some modicum of compassion and empathy, uh, which he won't, which is all the more reason for him not to be in the Oval Office.
We want to thank you so much for spending this hour. Mary Trump, niece of President Donald Trump, clinical psychologist, author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. That does it for the show. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Thank you for listening.